Welcome to the Composer Studio Podcast. On the Composer Studio, we listen to the music of living composers. We talk to them about their writing process, and we learn about the world of music that they live and work in. I'm Tarek Iridella. And I'm Amy Scaria, and today we are so happy to feature a North Carolina-based composer, performer, and visual artist, Stephen Downing, who is currently earning his PhD at Duke University in Durham. Stephen embraces minimalism, rock, and sacred music, and for anyone asking themselves what is minimalism in music, we're going to dive into that a little bit during our show. Stephen's music travels from traditional to the absurd. Drawing from familiar music sounds, he utilizes his material in modern and decidedly untraditional ways, inviting the listener to travel through a sonic world that is both familiar and delightfully surprising. With this language as his backdrop, he explores the world around us in ways that make us pay attention to the mundane or even the absurd. I'm so excited to welcome you today, Stephen, to our show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad we connected a while ago and it's been, you know, we we had this little thing called the pandemic that kind of uh, <laughs> we had to sort of figure out. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I'm so glad we've we've figured this out. We have you on and um there's so much I want to ask you and we'll get to that um including your decisions to embrace minimalism and what you describe as the absurd. Before we play your first selection of music, which is just beautiful, I am so enticed by your music. Uh, This piece is entitled Water Under Light for Solo, Viola, and Electronics. Could you talk briefly about what draws you to creating this marriage between live musicians and electronics? Yeah, absolutely. So usually the electronic element of the music is derived specifically from the instruments themselves. Uh, Even in the case of this first piece, we're going to be listening to Water Under Light for Solo, Viola. So everything you'll hear is either the live solo viola uh, played by Jonathan Bagg here or derived from the sound of Jonathan's viola. Um, So everything is either time stretched to be longer or time compressed to be much shorter or added a lot of reverb or focusing on specific frequencies and bringing those out. And I just really feel like this gives the whole piece a cohesive sort of sound world that the listener can live within as they're hearing the piece that really just creates the sound environment.
That was Water Under Light for solo viola and electronics performed by Jonathan Bagg, who is a a violist at Duke University uh, and also plays in the Chompy Quartet. Um, And Stephen, this piece was premiered at Duke University. Is that right? It was actually somewhat of a funny story. So this piece was actually uh, began as like a class assignment. And to be honest, I don't remember what class it was for and I don't remember what the assignment was. Um, but in composition classes, we typically have to write very short pieces, you know, 30 seconds to 45 seconds just to demonstrate a concept. But I fell in love so much with this little fragment of music that I wrote. I wanted to spin it out into a whole piece. So I did just take some really small elements and turn them in. I mean, of course it's still a small piece, but I took those small elements and turned them into a three to four minute piece, um, for Jonathan. So this piece has actually never, as far as I know, been performed live. It's only exists in this recorded state. Oh, interesting. And you were talking about small elements, which leads really nicely into this idea of minimalism, which I mentioned in your introduction. Will you talk to us for um, the listening audience, you know, um, who might not know what minimalism is? Uh, will you sure describe thing. that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, it's a big word. So let me try to put a little, oh, nice yeah, little yeah. I'm, I'm putting it. you yeah, on the spot yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, totally fine. Um, so minimalist music in general, um, started in the late 1960s as kind of, uh, a reaction to the prevalent music of the time in the contemporary classical music world where things were getting very bombastic and very complex and very difficult to understand, for someone who didn't live in the world of classical music. So composers like Terry Riley and Julius Eastman and Steve Reich um, all made a concerted effort to create music that was, while not necessarily simple, it was repetitive and through this repetition became easier to understand for audiences and, at least to me, more appealing to the ear. Um, So the main overarching sort of idea of minimalist music is that it uses few elements where the term minimal comes from and uses those elements in a very economical way, maximizing the effect you can get from very few sorts of very small ideas. So there are from the sixties and seventies, there are pieces that lasted hours that use only a few notes. Lamont Young comes to mind of just droning on one or two pitches for the length of the whole concert. And that is the music. So those sorts of that economical use of ideas really appeals to me, not only as a listener, but as a composer. So in the piece we just heard, it does have just a constant rhythm. It The piece actually almost has no rhythm to it. It's just a constant string of notes that flows and does have this sort of internal repetition. So I'm trying to use this internal repetition to create this sort of lulling ambient world. Yeah. Well, like I described. You, you, I, you described minimalism quite well. So well done. And I'm just curious about, you. you know, one might assume that select, you know, using minimalism as a, as a compositional 
um, palette might seem on the surface level to be easy, but in fact, writing with simple ideas or simplistically can be um, sometimes a lot more difficult. Um, so, so what, why, why is it that you were drawn to minimalism? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one that I do ask myself pretty often because <laughs> yeah. I, I am an obsessive composer. Um, I'm somewhat an obsessive person a bit, I will say, but in my music, I will spend so long on the tiniest elements listening or, you know, sometimes imagining a measure of music over and over and over and over again, even though the music, you know, if it's 10 minutes long, a 10 minute long piece, if I'm sitting there listening to every few seconds over and over and over again, it seems like it would become sort of monotonous or the opposite. Each little detail would be so complex that there would be so much going on that it would be impossible to understand. But I have the opposite experience. I really enjoy these tiny nuances that happen when you use fewer elements in a piece. So the mm. piece we just heard, it's only a few minutes long, but you can, at least I, can listen to it many, many times and always hear new things because it does have a repetition and it does have these few elements. So different things become in and out of focus, almost like looking through a camera lens while you're taking a photo and you change the focus dial. There's so many things going on just in one image, but it's really just your own perception. So that's it's, maybe that's some way to think of it. Yeah, that's an interesting metaphor. And this is such an interesting time during the pandemic that is forcing all of us um, or so many people to, to sort of return to simplicity and um, your music really, really resonates with that, especially now. Um, so how do you see this time in terms of creativity um, and in terms of creating art that makes sense for these times? I mean, you're sort of already doing that, but um, mm -hmm. but do you, but you know, it, are these times changing you at all or, or, or sort of maybe solidifying more of your focus? It's such an interesting thing to think about how a composer responds to the time in which they exist because mm -hmm. composition in and of itself is so unique as an art form where there is this sort of an almost inherent delay in a product that we put forth. So for example, a piece I'm working on right now will be workshopped in August and then won't even actually be performed until March of next year. So obviously in the time like right now, how are we supposed to respond to that when there is this inherent delay, which is a problem, not a problem, but I think just something that composers have to, um, composers have to tackle. So yeah. for me, I try to create this sort of music that doesn't necessarily respond to the time we live in, but just, um, but it just creates this sort of environment where listeners are invited in and can choose to focus on the music if they want, but if they would rather, they can add their own sort of story and envision what could be going on. Or I think my music is nice for internal um, meditation often, mm -hmm. at least that's how I experience it. And some performers have told me that they experience it as well. So I hope that that sort of meditative quality is helpful for people who listen to it uh, during this difficult time. 
So, Stephen, I was curious, uh, your piece, the, the the way you were describing it, the piece we just listened to, and, you know, even just by the nature of minimalism, it kind of has that quality where you're able to see through it, right? You're able to see what's going on. Mm. And yet yeah. there is another side to minimalism that gets layered, right? So you get composers like John Adams who like to just chunk layers and layers and layers of minimalist treatment on top of one another until you get this massive battleship of a piece. And I was just curious, have you ever done a piece like that? Is minimalism to you something that is really thinned out and transparent? Or is it something that can become really beefy and layered on? Yeah, I do almost always think of my music in terms of layers, exactly the way you described it. Um, So the piece, that viola piece, there is the live layer, which is sort of, you know, the foreground of the music, but the electronic elements are layered and layered and layered. I think it has eight or nine electronic layers happening at the same time that shift in and out. Um, That one, that piece specifically kind of paints one picture in my mind, at least Um, we kind of exist in this world that is pretty dense the whole time. There are a lot of elements going on, but a lot of my other pieces, like the next one we're going to listen to, um, does have a lot of moments of transparency where there is only one layer of material going on. You can really settle into that. And then maybe once you've gotten used to one layer of material, then a new layer is introduced, which could recontextualize the first layer for you. And as these layers build and diminish, um, the piece evolves over time in a very sort of natural way. Well, we're going to listen now to that piece. It's called The Other Side of This.
That was the other side of this. You know, listening to that piece, thinking of the title also, Stephen, makes me wonder if the other side of this is referring to the other side of this pandemic. Um, Was that at all on your mind or does this piece predate the pandemic? This piece does predate the pandemic. It was mostly written last winter. Um, I often title my pieces with phrases that are meant to be sort of open to interpretation, just like sort of an abstract painting might be, you know, an untitled painting that doesn't have any clear imagery. What is that supposed to be doing? And in my opinion, it's supposed to allow the onlooker, or in my case, the listener, to insert their own sort of projection about what is happening. So with my titles, I try to create, paint sort of that picture 
Um, and in this case, the other side of this, it's supposed to maybe suggest that we're only looking at one side of something that's going on. So if you might find yourself going through a certain situation, that there's another side to this. Um, there is a perspective that you haven't yet explored. Um, so that's kind of what I'm doing musically in the piece, but also extra musically, that's perhaps what I'm suggesting. But like I said, the title is purposefully meant to be vague so that listeners can sort of insert their own meaning if they want to, or they can try to figure out what the title means, which isn't much to be honest. <laughs> the piece is, is written for solo flute and, and or piccolo and electronics. And it was performed by Lila Senebaldi. She was the flute player. Um, you heard like 13 layers of Lila's flute playing. So you heard wow. a lot of Lila impact. Tell us a little bit about the process. I'm sure there are people who are curious, you know, when you're writing for electronics, what comes first? For me, it really differs piece to piece. So this one specifically, it's the notation came first. So I sat behind my computer. I don't really write things down all that much. So I sat down behind the computer and started writing some fragments of ideas. Like I mentioned earlier when talking about minimalism, instead of writing long, drawn-out melodies that can take 8, 16, 32 measures to spin themselves out, I wrote down really short fragments of monophonic material. So one measure, maybe just one note um, played with a certain technique that gives it an identity, or a few measures long of some sort of rhythm I like, all these little fragments of ideas. Then I took those fragments and created the whole piece uh, out of them through the notation. So if you were to look at the score, you would see that sometimes there would be one flute line and that's it. And sometimes the whole page is occupied by different flutes and piccolos and they're all playing different things. So in this case, we, I guess you could say the, kind of, it kind of came together as a total package. And that's partially because of the inherent process of recording a piece with electronics. This one actually resembled how I composed it. I gave Lila, the flutist, the piece of music with all the fragments on it. So we actually recorded all the fragments and then I edited them together um, in um, uh, an audio manipulation software afterwards. So instead of her having to play through a flute part that just kept repeating and repeating and repeating for a long time, she just had to play it once. And then I let the computer take care of the repetition. So it was... Um, a very sort of practical approach to composing just to save time, actually. Was it, uh, it so there's an element of chance then to this piece in, in the sense that the software was uh, pushing out the repetition where it wanted to. Is that Exa correct? Yeah, in some cases. Um, and some there are a few little things in there. There's um, a couple, probably a minute and a half to two minutes of the music have pitch shift, actually. And sometimes the pitch shifting can be a little spotty. It's supposed to, in one section, drop the flute by one octave. And then the following phrase, it's similar music, but expanded a bit. And then it drops the flute by two octaves. And then in the next phrase, it's expanded even more. And it drops the flute by three octaves, which gives this really nice sort of full organ quality, which, as you can imagine, writing a piece for solo flute doesn't have a lot of bass so it was nice to explore that bass register through the use of pitch shifting. 
Um, so, but sometimes the pitch shifting can be a little spotty. So I am kind of relying on the computer to do the pitch shift correctly, but sometimes it doesn't. And that sort of, ch- sort of chance sort of things can go wrong. I actually don't view them as going wrong. I actually really enjoy the sort of error, um, the sort of errors that can happen when you're asking a computer to do something just the exact same way a com- composer who's working with acoustic music would write a score and then hope that the performer would do everything correctly. The performer is going to have inherent errors, no matter how great they are. So you can either hate those errors or you can learn to embrace them, which is what I try to do when working with performers or with computers. Stephen, I want to shift gears a little bit and move on to the next piece we want to present to our listeners. And you've talked a bit about, you know, leaving this space for the listener to to approach your music. And I love that idea. And I, I experienced that listening to it. Um, but I want to move next to this piece called Terms and Conditions, um, which actually gets quite specific in its um, in its text. And I have to say, you had me cracking up when I listened to this. Um, <laughs> I, I, I just absolutely love the, the humor in this piece, the absurdity of it. Um, this piece is for two sopranos, two percussionists, and piano. And it sounds like you literally set to music, the terms and conditions that we all skip <laughs> from, <laughs> from, from websites. Is that right? Yeah. Well, what you, you've got it right for the most part. Um, what I think is kind of an interesting ele- element of it, and we'll talk more about this, but it's not just the terms and conditions of a website. It's a sample terms and conditions document that you know, a new website is supposed to download and insert their own sort of name into. So instead of saying like, you know, Walmart or whatever company name it might be, it actually says in brackets, company name in all caps. Uh, often in the music, I do try to accentuate that. But yeah, this, the Sopranos are literally all reading the terms and conditions of a website uh, almost entirely unchanged. And sometimes and singing it as well, right? Yes, they're always singing, actually. Sometimes the other yeah. performers are speaking, which you obviously that's easier to tell in a live performance. But in the recording, sometimes you'll hear the percussionists and pianists speaking, um, different sort of bullet points. The way I tried to approach the text, which is men, it's three pages long of you know single, single spaced, <laughs> small font. So there's a lot to get through. We're only listening to less than half of it. Because it's so right. Long. So these are these are excerpts, and so these are excerpts. Before we lead into this piece, and we'll talk more about it, um, because I I just I love this piece so much. But before we talk about it, um, do you happen to have your program notes in front of you? If not, I can read them. But I would love to lead in with uh, your program notes. Okay. Would you like me to read them? Yes, please. <laughs> please read these website terms and conditions carefully before listening to this piece. This piece is available for your listening only on the condition that you agree to the terms and conditions set forth below. If you do not agree to all of the terms and conditions, do not listen to this piece. By accessing or listening to this piece, you and the entity you are authorized to represent, you or your, signify your agreement to be bound by the terms and conditions. That's hilarious. (laughs) Trying to take a unique spin instead of just (laughs) describing what I did in the most sort of composerly way. That is really, really great. Did you get any feedback from having that in your program notes? Um, It got a lot of laughs, I will say, (laughs) which is I don't write a lot of music that's sort of very, you know, humorous in the traditional way. So um, people really did kind of enjoy it, I think. Here's 
Come 
password you may have for this website are confidential, and you must maintain confidentiality of such information. was Terms and Conditions, and you're listening to the Composer Studio. Uh, I'm Amy Scaria with uh, my co-host, Tarek Ghirardella, and our guest is Stephen Downing. Um, Terms and Conditions is written for two sopranos, two percussionists, and piano, and the performers there were sopranos Elena, uh, Stephen, help me with the Stabile. Am I saying Stabile, that correct? yeah. 
Stabil. Catherine Ambrester, percussionists Makana Medeiros and Selena Quo and Sarah Bar- Barham at the piano. Um, and I also want to mention that this is not the entire piece that we're playing during the show. Um, Stephen has excerpted it. If you would like to uh, watch the entire piece, um, which I would highly recommend, it's it's very it's even funnier to watch. Um, you can go to YouTube and search for Stephen Downing terms and conditions, and it'll pull up. You can also find Stephen's music on his website at Stephen Downing, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-D-O-W-N-I-N-G.com. Stephen, first of all, thank you for creating this piece. Um, In these difficult times of pandemic, it was really nice and refreshing to listen to something that um, allowed me to experience some levity and humor. Um, and you've said this brilliantly for several reasons. It's hysterically funny because there's not a soul on earth who reads the terms and conditions. They're an unusual person. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. You might not have much to say because, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or they might not have much to say. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, and, and what's, what I love about this is you set, you set it to, to music, forcing the audience to listen to it. Right. <laughs> um, but you make it interesting interesting and funny. But I'm curious, how did you come up with this idea? It's not something that comes, you know, readily to the mind when when we're thinking about, you know, finding text that <laughs> one would sure. think quickly of terms and conditions. So right. what made you think of something as dry and mundane as this? Yeah. So this piece was written for the Neefnorf Summer Festival. Um, and a lot of these summer festivals, as a composer, they just kind of assign you an instrumentation. So I was assigned this sort of instrumentation with the sopranos and the the accompanying instrumentalists. And most composers, when they have to write some vocal music, they search for some poetry and they search and search and search and search until they find a poem they like. And then they say, now this is it. I can really capture what this is supposed to sound like in my music. And they take that poem and they turn it into some music. And I was trying to do that. I promise that I read tons of poetry and I just could not find any that I thought really reflected the sort of piece I wanted to write for the summer festival. So I thought, what is the opposite of a poem? And I found this sort of sample terms and conditions document. And I thought, you know, this really captures what I'm trying to do with this piece. And I want it to be funny and I want it to be non-serious in some ways. Um, and a poem, even if it's a poem that has humor in it, it's just not going to capture that sort of same essence as the absurdity of like ha- seeing these two professional vocalists come out and sing terms and conditions. How unusual right. of a thing to do. Right, right. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and to dig into it so so much because we know when we set text, we really have to get to know that text. And I also might add that this was a great choice on your part, because a lot of times in these festivals, we're not given a lot of time to create our pieces. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have that time and space to sort of ruminate over, you know, what words you wanted to connect oh, with. But right. then I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but it's not unusual to fall in love with a piece and even set it and and then, you know, make the rookie mistake of saying, oh, I didn't ask for permission or this is this has this is copywritten. <laughs> yeah, right. And all of a sudden you have this piece that you can't use. Right. Um, so I'm curious. So that's brilliant. But I'm curious if you had to check and see if terms and conditions was, um, was available. <laughs> Luckily, since it's not a poem, it's not a copyrighted. I guess some 
non-poetic texts are copyrighted, but this one is specifically made for people to take and use themselves. So luckily, true, true, yeah. I'm sure that whoever, whatever lawyer, or whoever wrote this document <laughs> was not expecting this to happen with it, but I used it for a very, um, for very much its intended purpose, Take for someone to take it and use it for their own use. Oh, I have a funny challenge for you. Wouldn't it be funny to figure out which attorney, or it might have been several, wrote the terms and conditions and put that in your score? <laughs> oh, wow. I, yeah, tech, I was wondering who to put text to buy. I don't think I ended up including that, but I guess I should go try to find those guys. <laughs> yeah, or or women, you don't know. Yeah, right. It's, you never know. It's probably a big team of people if I had to guess. And they That's definitely I mean, did not yeah. have this in mind. Right. <laughs> how delighted though if you know you might even let them know that you did this and yeah right maybe a new fan or something (laughs) (laughs) hey steven i want to thank you so much for being on the show today you know it it is an absolute blast to get to know your music amy and i really enjoyed it all week getting to know your music getting to know your background and uh, and and listening to music and being able to share it with the audience here listening to the show and i just from the bottom of my heart wanted to thank you so much for being on this week oh thank you guys so much and it's been a real blast to get to revisit some of these like terms and conditions i was working on i think two or three years ago which probably to a lot of people doesn't sound like a lot but as a pretty young guy that's kind of coming a lot for me as a that was ages ago. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's nice to get to revisit and talk about these pieces in such detail that, you know, often kind of just exist on my website and people probably don't ever look at them. And I, I'm, honestly, I don't think about them that often because they're, you know, I'm focusing on the next new thing. So it's really great to get to talk about some of them. Awesome. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Hey, we're going to end now with a piece of yours called In Vacant Lots. And I wanted to ask if you could just uh, give us about 30 seconds, a uh, little bit of a background to the piece. Sure. So In Vacant Lots is a response, sort of a response piece to a pretty well-known piece by Steve Reich called Electric Counterpoint, which is written for tons and tons of electric guitars, pretty much. So what you have here is a piece in three movements for many, I think, 15 layers of electric guitars, um, all played by Jay Source, a wonderful New York-based guitarist. Um, And it kind of spans everywhere from sort of ambient textural music and gets pretty rock and roll towards the end.
Listening to the Composer's Studio, created and produced by Amy Scoria, Anna Linville, and Tarek Giridala. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Composer's Studio. Pop over to our Facebook page for bonus links, music, tidbits, and news about our featured composers. You can also visit our website at www.composerstudionc.com. If you are a composer and interested in being considered for a feature on our show, reach out to us at composerstudionc at gmail.com or send us a note through our Facebook page or website. We'd love to hear from you. The opening music for our show was composed by Tarek Ghirardella and the closing music was composed by Amy Scoria. Until next week, thank you for listening and opening your ears to the music of today.